Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. On today's Mighty Littles Podcast, I am sharing an interview that I did with Ashley and Tim Dorsey. Ashley went into labor at 23 and a half weeks with her twins because of a placental abruption, and Liam and Wyatt were born about 18 months ago. They definitely had the ups and downs and went through the gamut of complications that we can see with 23-week babies. This is not an easy story to share because Wyatt passed away uh, during the first month in the NICU. And for the remainder of Liam's time in the NICU, they had to celebrate Liam and celebrate his small wins and feel joy from Liam while at the same time processing and grieving the loss of Wyatt. And I think it took a lot of courage for Ashley and Tim to come on the podcast to talk about this. And I'm truly grateful that they reached out to share their story. That said, I remember when I started this podcast, my husband asked me, if I was only going to share certain stories or if I was going to share kind of all comers. And I really want to share all stories, stories of grief and stories of love and stories of courage and stories of hope. You cannot talk about the NICU and you cannot be in the NICU without acknowledging the fact that some babies, unfortunately, do not survive to discharge. And this is one of those stories. If the listening to this episode is going to be too painful or too triggering for you, then I encourage you to turn it off and come back to it in a week or a month or a year or never come back to it if it is still too triggering for you. But if you really want to know about what it's like to go through the NICU while you're trying to balance the loss of one child while celebrating the wins of another child. I think that Ashley and Tim really do a nice job sharing their story and what their experience was like and how with time they were able to find more and more joy. Hi everybody, this is Anna Zimmerman. I am the host of the Mighty Littles podcast and today we have Ashley and Tim Dorsey with us and they are going to talk about their NICU experience with their 23-week twins, Liam and Wyatt. Welcome to the podcast, you guys. Thanks for having us, Dr. Zimmerman. Um, Like Dr. Zimmerman said, my name is Ashley Dorsey. Uh, My name is Tim Dorsey. Um, And we are the parents, um, like she said, of our 23-weekers, Liam and Wyatt. Um, They decided to make their appearance really, really early, which puts a lot of stress on us. (laughs) That they did. Why don't we just jump right in, and I'm going to let you guys just kind of talk through your NICU experience um, and tell the story of your babies. Um, So as far as my pregnancy goes, um, I had a very normal pregnancy. Um, Our twins were what they call mono dye twins, so um, monochorionic diamniotic twins, um, which means that they each had their own um, amniotic sac, but they shared one placenta. Um, so with being pregnant with twins and then having the type of twins that we did, we were higher risk, but um, every appointment that we went to, um, we had ultrasounds. They didn't see any signs of um, twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, which is where one baby gets more 
blood supply than the other. Um, so as far as like their measurements go and everything, everything was normal. Um, and we actually got to our 20 week appointment, um, did the anatomy scan, everything looked great. Um, and then they decided that that's when we would schedule the rest of my appointments out, which hindsight I'm thinking was bad juju. <laughs> we got them all scheduled and we were super excited um, to meet them whenever that time came. So then January 13th comes and I was 23 weeks and three days. We went to church that morning, um, went to uh, Home Depot to pick out the paint colors for the nursery. Um, so everything was kind of getting more and more surreal. I had a little bit of cramping that day, nothing like minor or nothing major, I should say. Um, we went and got some food to eat. I drank some water and everything resolved and I felt fine the rest of the day. Um, and then January 14th rolled around and I think it was around like 2 a.m. maybe, um, that I woke up with just horrible cramps, um, like menstrual cramps on steroids and um they were super sporadic at first and I just kind of tossed them up to Braxton Hicks maybe but then they started so they started out in the front and then they kind of started to wrap around to my back area and they got a little bit more consistent and they were like consistently 10 minutes apart and so that's when I was like I'm gonna call just to see you know what they say um, so I called the on-call doctor and she said, come on in, I'll let them know that you're coming. So at the time, um, our OB doctor was an hour and a half away from us. So we made the hour and a half drive at like 2.30, 3 a.m. And I think we made it in about an hour. So we got there and um, they got me hooked up or they had me do um, ear analysis um, got me hooked up to field monitors. Um, babies looked great. Their heart rates were in the 150s like they usually were um, at every other appointment we had had. Um, they didn't show any signs of distress. Um, so then the on-call doc came in. She um, did the fetal fibronectin test to see um, if I was potentially in preterm labor. Um, and then she did an exam also. And um, ever so calmly, like, I don't know how she stayed this calm, but she just was like, so you're four centimeters dilated and 80% effaced. So we're going to make a phone call and we're going to get you transferred to Presbyterian St. Luke's. And I just remember looking at Tim and the look on his face was priceless. Like what is happening? Like neither of us expected to go there and be told that we were, um, in labor so early. Um, so after a few minutes, I think that's when it finally hit me and I just started shaking, crying uncontrollably. Um, I'm a nurse. So as a nurse, I know I'm not a, I don't do NICU. I don't do peds, but, um, just through schooling, I knew that, you know, 23 weeks is really, really early. Um, so I just kept telling myself that everything was going to be okay. We made a phone call to our parents and told them what was going on. Um, and then that's kind of when the chaos started. We had um, the flight team come in. Um, they couldn't get an IV started on me to save my life. <laughs> um, so I think at one point I had three different people trying to get an IV started on me. 
Um, and it was actually the flight nurse that was in training that got one started, thankfully. So they did IV fluids. Um, they gave me a mag bolus. Um, and then I also got a dose of steroids um, to help with the boys' lung development. Um, and then I earned myself a helicopter ride, which was not fun because I do not like flying at all. <laughs> Scares the ever-living crap out of me. But um, so I got into a helicopter. Tim asked if he could go with, but because they had a flight nurse in training, there was no room on the helicopter. So he had to make the drive by himself from Scotts Bluff, Nebraska to Denver, Colorado, which is about... Supposed to be about four hours. Yeah. And how, how long did it take you? <laughs> uh, let's just say I shaved about 25% off of that time. Okay. So we'll call it three. Yeah, call it three. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He even made a phone call um, to State Patrol in Colorado, I think. Yeah, I probably wasn't in the right state of mind, but uh, for some reason I thought they might give me a get out of jail free card for speeding. So I called and uh, essentially asked for uh, permission to speed in which they told me that uh, you're crazy. You're not in the right state of mind to drive. You need to pull over. Uh, I didn't pull over, but. But you made it safely to the hospital. Exactly. Yes. yes. Essentially, uh, he's saying, don't do what I did. Uh, find somebody to drive you. Right. Yes. yes. <laughs> if possible, yes. Um, so my parents actually live in northern Colorado, um, and my sister at the time was in Denver. So as soon as they found out, they both went to the hospital. So thankfully, I had them there, um, and they got there um, about the same time that I did. Um, so I got in my room. Um, the docs came in, introduced themselves. Um, kind of just the normal routine, I'd say. Um, and they, I, I think at that point, my contractions were about every three minutes. Um, oh, and that was one thing I, I did want to say. So on the helicopter, um, they had told me that they were going to um, mute my headphones so that I couldn't hear what they were saying because they were going to call report in to um, Presbyterian St. Luke's. And, um, but they said, as soon as you have a contraction, raise your hand. And then as soon as it stops, raise your hand. So I was doing that. Well, they didn't mute my headphones so I could still hear what they were saying. Um, and the lead flight nurse was calling report in. And at that point he said, he asked the, the pilot, um, how much longer we had. And I can't remember how long the pilot said until we got there, but he said, I need you to do whatever you can to get us there faster because her contractions are consistently three minutes apart and I'm not delivering twins in an open field or on this helicopter. And I like went into mass panic. Obviously, he had no idea that I could hear him. Um, but it was very, very scary to hear that, um, that the idea of my babies might be born in the middle of an open field somewhere at 23 weeks. Um, and I don't even know if they have ET tubes small enough to intubate them in, you know, their bags or whatever. So got to the hospital. My contractions were, like I said, consistently three minutes apart. And um, the OB doc came in and she said, our goal is to keep you from going into labor and delivering these babies um, for 48 hours. That way we can get two more doses of steroids um, on board to help with lung development. 
And I think, so everybody else came in just to sign consent forms and whatnot. Um, and I think it was about 15, 20 minutes later after we had had this conversation of waiting 48 hours, I had another contraction and the nurse was in there and I said, this might sound super weird, but my butt really hurts with this contraction. And she kind of looked at me and like her face went white and she was like, are you sure? And I was like, well, I mean, I think I would know, but yes, I'm pretty sure. Um, so she said, well, let's just wait for another contraction to come and see if, you know, you still have that discomfort. Um, sure enough, I did. So she had not checked me yet. So she went and got the OB doc, um, just so she could come in and she came in and she said, you're complete. Your babies are coming today. And I just started crying. Um, Tim was not there yet. I had no idea how far away he was. My sister had been calling and talking to him, giving him updates. Um, and so the last phone call she gave him was, you've got time to get here, 48 hours, but then you'll, you know, babies will be here. Um, so her and my mom, I guess, made the decision to not call Tim and tell, the, tell him that I was going back to the OR for my emergency C-section. Um, my sister thought that was a terrible idea, so she called Tim after my mom left um, to tell him. Uh, so I had my mom in the OR with me, which I'm so grateful and thankful that I had that support system there. But obviously, um, I preferred to have Tim there. And the fact that he wasn't um, is super hard, but it's part of our story. Sorry. Um, You're doing great. You know, you have this like, idea of a birth plan in your head and you obviously as a nurse I know like things can never go according to plan um but I think the one two of the biggest things was that our boys were born healthy and that Tim and I were together to experience that um so that was hard but like I said I'm super grateful and thankful that my parents lived so close and that my sister was in Denver and that I was able to have that support there because if I did not have any support that would be even harder I think. I don't even really remember a whole lot um, in the OR. Um, they um, gave me a spinal um, while I was curled up in a ball on the table. <laughs> Tiny little you know OR table try not to roll try not to move. Um, so, you know, they're telling me lay as still as possible while I'm having contractions, which is almost impossible, but, um, they managed to get it thankfully. Cause otherwise I would have had to go completely under, which I did not want. Um, so my mom came in and she tried giving me, um, play by play as much as she could the whole time. I'm just praying and crying and, you know, begging God to just let my babies survive delivery. Um, as a nurse, I knew that their chances of surviving the delivery alone was probably about 50%. There was a ton of people in there and you were actually at my delivery. I was at your delivery. Babies came out. So Liam was baby A. Um, he was born at 9.52 AM. He weighed one pound, six ounces, and he was 11 and three quarters inches long. Um, and then a minute later, Wyatt was born, um, one pound, eight ounces, and he was 12 and a quarter inches long. Um, obviously, their APGAR scores were very, very low. Um, 
And I had actually just gone through um, NRP certification probably, I don't know, a couple months prior to that. So in my head, in the middle of praying and begging and crying, I'm running through all the scenarios of like, what do they need next? Um, obviously, I, like I said, I'm not a NICU nurse, so I don't know. I just was going off of what I learned in NRP, but um, so that was very scary to be um, in, I guess, in the situation of a mom and a nurse. Um, I truly believe that ignorance is bliss. And I think in this type of situation, I don't know if it was the greatest that I'm a nurse just because, you know, I have that nurse side of me that's running through all of the things that could be going wrong. And then as the mom, you're just praying that everything goes okay. Um, so I ended up going into preterm labor um, due to partial placental abruption. Um, on Liam's side was the side that um, had abrupted. Um, so that explains why everything happens so quickly. And I mean, thankfully, our bodies know what to do in those types of situations and they just take over. Obviously, with part, my, part of my placenta abrupted, that's eventually not good for the babies. Um, so my body ultimately did what it was supposed to do to deliver them, but it was just too early. Um, so Tim was not there still at this point. <laughs> I don't really know how far out you were. I think I, I think I missed delivery by about 15 minutes. Not by very much because what I, so what I remember is getting called to the delivery pretty urgently and doing the resuscitation in the delivery room. And I remember you crying. Um, (laughs) and I knew you were not hearing anything that I was saying, which is totally okay. I actually don't expect that. And then I remember getting over to the unit and within very, very shortly after we got to the unit, you, you came into the unit. Um, so you didn't, other than the delivery portion of it, you didn't miss very much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember uh, running into you in the hallway. Yeah. Uh, right outside the elevator and you said you know all things considered uh the boys are doing really well for uh for the situation that arose and that was was really reassuring and I think what what I needed to hear at that time with with so much unknown so yeah so um and I remember I don't think I don't know if Tim talked to his parents or what but Um, I just told him like, don't come see me. I'm fine. I have my parents. I have your parents. I have my sister. Just go make sure, you know, that the boys are okay and be with them. So, um, I was really glad that he was able to be up there. Um, you know, just knowing that they weren't, not that they were not alone because obviously they had nurses and doctors and and NNPs, but, um, just that he was able to be with them, that was really reassuring to me because um, I knew that I was not going to be able to go see them at least until I had feeling and could walk again. <laughs> so um, when did you get to go see them for the first time then? Because, Tim, you got to see them kind of right after they were born. But then when did you finally get to see them, Ashley? Um, I don't exactly know what time, but it was just later that evening. Um, I honestly don't remember a whole lot from going there. Um, I do remember, um, going into the NICU, um, and walking into their room. They're in a twin room. Um, so they're in the same room. 
Um, and I remember going to their isolettes and lifting up the little isolette covers. And I think, I, I honestly don't know what I felt. It was a mix of emotions. You know, you, um, obviously they were very, very small, very fragile, red. Their skin was see-through. Um, they're hooked up to all these different monitors. They've got IVs going in, they've got, you know, drips going and, it was kind of just like an out-of-body experience almost. Like I never, ever envisioned that I would be, we would be in that situation where our babies can fit in the palm of our hand and I don't have very big hands. Um, so that was really weird. And I just remember crying, um, <clears throat> telling them that everything was going to be okay. I knew we were in the best place possible. Um, our, the hospital that I did work at in Sydney was critical access. And anytime we had really sick babies or preterm babies, um, we always flew to PSL. That's who we, you know, that was who our go-to was. Um, so I knew that they were in the best place that they could be um, for the situation we were in. Um, so I, I remember reaching in and their tiny little fingers just wrap around one of my fingers. And I think at that point, that's when I realized like how little they were, you know, seeing their hands next to my index finger is, it was, I mean, amazing. Our parents, obviously not all parents get to experience that. Not saying that I think all parents should experience it, but um, it's kind of, I don't know. It obviously is one heck of a story yeah. for us. What was your reaction when you first saw them, Tim? Uh, kind of same. They, you know, they were, um, that there's probably four nurses assigned to each of the boys trying to get them stabilized. And so I tried to stay out of the way as much as possible, but, you know, I was able to peek in. And I remember uh, kind of seeing them, what, what to me, my uh, unknowledged mind, it looked like they were wrapped in saran wrap, like plastic saran wrap. They were. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they worked because because their skin is so immature and so translucent that they're going to lose all of their heat and all yeah. of their fluid out of their skin. And so for back of a, lack of a better phrase, we slide them into a Ziploc bag. It's not actually a Ziploc bag, but that's right. what it looks like with some ties yeah. at the top. And then if babies are cold, which oftentimes 23-week babies get cold very easily, then we'll put extra saran wrap over top of them to try to really lock in all that heat and moisture. So your description of they look like they were wrapped in saran wrap is really quite accurate. <laughs> yeah. And I think when, by the time I got up there, um, I want to say Wyatt was still um, wrapped up, but I don't think Liam was. I think he was managing his temp pretty well on his own, obviously, with the help of the isolate. Um, but I think Wyatt was still um, wrapped up, but I could be wrong. And I, again, it's very weird. I mean, I knew that that's what they needed through NRP certification, but it's just really weird to see it when it's your own baby. You know, it's one thing when it's a simulation on a computer or, you know, on a fake baby, you know, in the delivery room when you're going through it or whatever. But it's it's really weird to see it when it's your own own baby. Your story is so um, 
it's so relatable because pregnancies go really, really well right until the time that there's a complication. So it's really common for parents to say, but everything was going great. Everything was fine. And then all of a sudden it's not. So yeah, some pregnancies have, you know, complications that come on around whenever, 15 weeks, 12 weeks, 14 weeks early on, and you're kind of being Mm -hmm. monitored and you know things aren't going going well and you have this inkling that you might have a preterm baby. But I would say more often than not, everything is going fine right until you go into labor for a variety of different reasons that happen. So abruption and infection and incompetent cervix are kind of the the top three. Um, But I think your story really highlights everything's going fine until it's not. Yeah. And I think that's where I definitely was at is exactly like you said, everything's fine. We just had our 20 week, three weeks ago, they were healthy. They were, you know, doing great. I was doing great. I had no problems up until that point. And then it was just 2am on the 14th. And that's when everything started. And I, you know, looking back with the cramping that I had the day before, you know, but it wasn't anything alarming. I had mild cramping. I ate some food, drank some water, and then it was fine. And I was fine the rest of the day. I, you know, I didn't have any indication that something was wrong. So, um, I think that's the really frustrating thing too, is it's like, is it better to like have problems before and at least know about them rather than just be like blindsided by, you know, something like this just out of nowhere. That was, that's really hard. Yeah. And and we don't get to choose either, right? Right. You you get put into one of the two categories. It's not like you get to say, hey, I'd rather know about it or I'd rather just be blindsided. You you have no control over that. Right. And I think um, a lot of it, too, is you have those milestones throughout pregnancy. So, you know, you find out you're pregnant and it's get to 12 weeks, you know, because then that's, you know, the next big milestone. And then the next big milestone after that is 20 weeks. And so, you know, I felt like we hit the two really big milestones and then you're like, all right, it's going to be smooth sailing from here. And the next big milestone is, you know, delivery (laughs) in my mind. And I mean, it was, it just was a lot sooner than either of us, any of us wanted. They got settled into the NICU and admitted and they're in their twin room and their isolates. Why don't you talk me through the first couple of days to weeks in the NICU? The boys, which all babies go through, were in their honeymoon phase, is what they call. Um, So it kind of gives you a little bit of false hope (laughs) Um, just because they're doing great. You know, their oxygen requirements may be coming down a little bit. Um, Obviously, they're still intubated at this point. Um, But they were doing really, really good. Um, Wyatt was in his honeymoon phase longer than Liam. Um, Liam's honeymoon phase ended, I think, on day two. Um, do you want to two, or, two three. or three? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, and I so at that point I was kind of um, fielding most of the phone calls and stuff because Ashley was still um, admitted um, over in the uh, the mom and baby unit. So I was kind of running back and forth and taking our parents in to, to see the boys and things like that. And so um, I kind of remember that first, uh, you know, let's call it uncomfortable phone call from the doctor that was assigned to them for that, that rotation. Um, he just, you know, very calmly let us know, uh, you know, Liam's having some issues with his breathing. So um, I 
I was uh, not very uh, knowledgeable about all the medical <laughs> terms at that point. So most of the time I would just throw out the terms to Ashley and then get the, the uh, simple explanation of what was going on. He had a pulmonary hemorrhage. He required a little extra oxygen support. Uh, they brought in the, the big scary machine. Um, I think they put him on the jet ventilator first. Yeah. You know, it was, it, it was scary to see that that additional machine. It's loud, um, clanky, and it looks like it's from 1950. Um, yeah, so that that was uh, I was kind of on day three, I think, maybe day two. I don't I don't exactly remember, but um, that was kind of the first uh, of many scary phone calls that we started to receive of, of updates and then uh, you know not knowing okay do we need to do i need to go over to his room right now um and be there and the the doctors and nurses were very good about letting us know yes you need to like be concerned about this or no you don't need to be concerned about this and that that really helped us in that that first few weeks um and the the whole nursing staff just um you know, they made us feel like family. They, they opened up their lives to us and we told them all about our story. And, um, that, I think that made the first few weeks a lot easier having that, um, you know, um, those contacts to leverage and help, help calm the nerves through those situations. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think when you're in such a critical situation, it's really hard to build trust Right. So you have these two tiny babies who they were born at 23 weeks and didn't have the full 48 hours of steroid prep. We know that there's going to be complications. We know we're going to have to have hard conversations and somehow trying to build that trust and being able to share stories with people so that you get to know them well and they get to know you can help build that trust quicker so that when you are having these hard phone calls and these scary conversations, you trust the people that you're talking to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot. And I think, um, for Tim, it might've been a little easier. Um, but as a nurse, it's hard to let go of, you know, of that and let somebody else take over, you know? Um, and as a parent, it's hard to watch, your baby's being taken care of by somebody else. Um, That's really, really hard. So I was kind of battling like the mom and the nurse. Tim's just battling the dad part of it. Um, So I think, you know, it was a little, he was able to be a little bit more comfortable or I felt like I was just on edge because obviously I don't know if what they're doing is right, but it's like, are you doing the right thing for my baby? Like, is that the right spot for an IV? <laughs> you know, like just those little silly things like that um, were just always in the back of my head. Um, but just they were so knowledgeable and um, reassuring that it did make it a little easier for me to kind of loosen the reins a little bit and kind of let them take control. Um, but still, still very, very hard just with the situation that we were in. You know, it's your maternal instinct to take over and take care of your babies and you know when they're no longer inside of you and safe where they're supposed to be and they're out in the big scary world you know it's your instinct to take care of them and the fact that we couldn't take care of them like we were supposed to that was probably one of the hardest things those first few weeks was just 
navigating, you know, how do we feel like a parent in the NICU? Um, that's hard. Um, so Wyatt, um, Liam had his pulmonary hemorrhage. His honeymoon phase was over. Wyatt's honeymoon phase, I think, ended two days later, five, five, five days, days later. Ish. Yeah. Um, and he ended up getting a bowel perforation, which is super common in preemies. We found out, um, a lot of preemies end up getting them. Um, so we went with the non-surgical treatment first, where they placed a, um, tiny little drain in his abdomen, um, to allow all the bacteria and infection to drain out. Um, and they said that sometimes the tiny little hole um, will actually heal up on its own and it doesn't require surgery. So obviously we wanted to try the least invasive first because again, chances of survival with a pretty major surgery um, and a preemie at 23 weeks is, you know, just the odds aren't always in your favor. Um, so we did that for uh, a few days, I think. We did that, yeah. Um, and blood cultures and all those labs were still coming back um, positive. The infection wasn't going away, even with all of the big, heavy antibiotics that he was getting. Um, so that's when we had the hard decision of um, doing surgery and to go in and fix that um, perforation. So we met with the um, surgeon, um, and she was awesome. And... Uh, made the decision to go in and do surgery and fix it. And he did great through surgery. Um, they were able to repair the perforation. Um, and they said he did really, really well for how little he was, how they operate on those tiny little babies. It just blows my mind. Um, Cause I can't imagine how small their intestines are. I mean, it's just mind blowing that it's even possible to do. Yeah, I think, uh, like, to back up just a hair, so they they prepped us for surgery, here's what's going to happen, you know, all that kind of stuff, and then uh, we saw some carts start to show up in the hallway, and we were, you know, we were like, oh, you know, I don't know what that's all about, and so I think in our minds, he was going to go down to an OR and have this surgery, and then next thing we know, uh, the, the surgical team was in our room. <laughs> yeah. And we're sitting there uh, just kind of waiting, spending some time with him before surgery. And they're like, okay, you can stay in here if you want. We're going to get ready. Uh, you're welcome to stay in during surgery. And we just kind of like our jaws dropped. Um, so we were, they had, you know, they're able to separate that room. And we were able to kind of stay over on, on Liam's side of the room uh, or the suite. And uh, they were going to perform surgery right there next to us. And we both kind of were like, holy crap, there's no way that yeah. uh, we can stay in the room for that. We'll, you know, we'll step out for a little bit. But yeah, that's interesting uh, because we do so many surgeries on the unit, um, especially in those first couple weeks of life. That's where most of our surgeries take place. And then yeah. it's not until you have bigger, older babies that are getting hernia repairs or having a G-tube put in, then they go down to the OR. But all those kind of more emergent surgeries when the babies are sick, they all happen right in the unit. We just turn the unit into an OR. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And obviously it's safest for the baby because it's very um, stressful to move, you know, the baby if you don't need to. 
Um, so yeah, going to a whole nother floor, if that's where it's at on the, to an OR, um, obviously is very stressful because they have to go into, you know, an isolate that can be mobile. So you have transferring them from one isolate to the other and then out of the isolate to, you know, so it makes perfect sense, but we just were like, you're doing the surgery here in the room, like, and we can be on the other side. Um, and I seriously considered it, but I was like, no, I need to just, I need to not be in here. I can't hear what they're saying. I don't want to know what they're saying, you know? Um, so we just both decided to step out and, um, our parents were there. Um, and I think my sister was there too. Um, so that was nice to have that support system there. Um, and I just remember being so thankful and this huge relief off of my chest when the doctor came in and said, you know, everything went great. Um, she'd had a little diagram of a baby, um, on a piece of paper. And she said, this is where, you know, the incisions is or incisions are. And, um, that helped too, just to kind of visualize, um, before going in to see him, um, you know, kind of what happened and where the incisions were. And, um, you know, he had a ostomy and had a little, he was eventually hopefully stool into a little bag. I've never seen a bag that small before, but, um, so it helped to kind of, um, see that visual on a piece of paper before going and seeing him just so we have a little bit of an idea. Um, so to kind of go on with Wyatt, um, I think both boys, they obviously both had their umbilical lines. Um, but then I believe they both also had pick lines, um, with her central IVs. Um, and Wyatt's pick line had migrated and it was no longer central. We did blood cultures every day. Um, they kept coming back positive. They tried different antibiotics, um, nothing was working. And then they had suggested taking it out because with it being a foreign body, um, bacteria and infection love plastic in the body and they will adhere to it and they will stick to it until it's no longer in the body. Um, so they made the decision to take out the pick line. Um, and then they said, we're going to do our best to keep putting peripheral IVs in him. Um, but eventually he will need another central line, but we want to wait until we have, um, negative blood cultures for at least 48 hours before we put another one in to make sure we're out of the woods and have cleared this infection. We got to that point, which was huge relief. I mean, we were celebrating, you know, that we finally got rid of this infection that had just clung to his body for what felt like an eternity. And we felt like we were finally making um, some progress. You know, the one thing they tell you in the NICU is it's a roller coaster and it's one step forward and three steps back. Um, and that's so true because you get one tiny little victory and then you just regress and you just feel like you're back at square one. And that's kind of how we felt with Wyatt when we were just taking steps back and we were never moving forward. So they put the um, new pick line in. Everything was great. He was getting all of his um, fluids and antibiotics. And we were just so excited that he had made it through surgery. Liam had um, gotten through his pulmonary hemorrhage. Um, I think he was still on the jet. 
vent at that point, um, but he was moving in the right direction also. So we finally felt like we were making some progress with both of them. I think they both had had their, their brain scans, yeah. initial brain scans at that point. Both were uh, relatively normal. Liam had a, a very minor thing they said was almost not enough to medically mention, but they yeah. wanted to just keep us uh, over-informed, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so everything... Uh, head and heart looked good and so we were uh you know we were kind of feeling feeling pretty good about everything yeah um so um sorry this is where it's gonna get tough yeah this is where it's gonna get hard i'm sorry Uh, so uh there was one night i don't remember so it was january there's how many days in January? 31. 31 days in January. So January 31st, it actually probably was February 1st, super early in the morning. I don't know what time it was, but my phone rings. Um, and obviously, you know, a phone call very, very early in the morning is not good. I answered my phone and she said, Ashley, this is Dr. Kenan to make you. Um, and something's going on with Wyatt we're not really sure but um, we need you to come in Um, as a nurse when you hear we need you to come in you know that that's not good Um, Tim and I just we got dressed as soon as we could as fast as we could Um, and we because we lived in Sydney Nebraska we were staying at Ronald McDonald house which was just a block I think away from the hospital, like pretty much the same campus. So we drove over the two minutes it takes to drive over. um, And we get up to the NICU. um, And at that point, there was a lot of people surrounding Wyatt. um, And they were resuscitating him. Um, Sorry. It's really hard to see such a tiny baby with so many people around him and his heart rate I think was uh, minimal I mean only because they were resuscitating him um one of our primary nurses was actually um there taking care of William that night so she kind of stepped over to us and kind of explained what was going on because as soon as we got there like they were resuscitating Wyatt, all of their focus was on him, which is what we wanted. So she kind of told us what was going on. She just said everything was going fine throughout the night. And then all of a sudden he was having problems. He was needing um, more oxygen support. He was having AB spells, which is apneic and bradycardic. Um, So he's stopping breathing and then his heart rate was dropping. Um, So she said, we don't really know what's going on. So Dr. Kenaw came over. and kind of explain the same thing to us. And um, I think they uh, continued to resuscitate him for, I don't know, it felt like a really long time. It was long enough that we were able to go out in the hall and we called our parents and just said, we don't know what's going on, but um, why it's not doing very well, they're having to resuscitate him. And they just have no idea why um, he's not responding. So we went back inside to their room. And uh, at that point, Dr. Kenaw came over and she said, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing more we can do. 
Um, his heart was not beating on its own. Um, he was still taking breaths on his own. I mean, obviously he was being bagged. Um, but for some reason, his heart was just not um, responding. So they did also tell us um, that he had a cardiac tamponade, which is um, you have a sack around your heart <clears throat> that protects the heart. It fills with fluid, um, and that just prevents like friction when your heart beats. Um, they had pulled quite a bit of fluid. Um, excuse me, there's no fluid, but there's, they pulled quite a bit of fluid, um, off of his heart. Um, so they had said, you know, we pulled that off thinking that that would help and allow his heart to beat. Um, and it didn't. Um, so we made the decision to, um, stop resuscitation. They, um, unhooked him from everything and took out his, uh, ET tube. And at that point, it's like there's no going back. Um, when you see them take all the monitors off and take out his ET tube, which is essentially breathing for him, it's really hard because you feel like you're giving up on your child. Um, but being that he was 20, well, at that point, 24 weeks, um, his body can almost, his body can't take too much of resuscitation. I mean, it's stressful on an adult um, to be resuscitated. So let you know, consider how little he was and how fragile he was. Um, it's uh, it's not good to be just continuously resuscitated. I don't want to say they had tried for a really long time, and you know, I know with my medical background, there comes a point where there's nothing more you can do. Um, so they, um, wrapped him up in blankets and brought him over to us and we got to hold him, um, while he took his last breaths and he actually took his last breath in Tim's arms. Um, and Whitney, our, one of our primary nurses who's taking care of Liam, she sat with us. And that was just what we needed is we just needed somebody to sit with us because after they stopped resuscitating Wyatt, everybody left the room and you just, and I know they do that for privacy and to give you your time, but to just have so many people there and then nobody, you just feel so alone. So, you know, having Whitney there just, even though she didn't say anything, you know, she just cried with us. That was, um helpful just to have somebody else in the room and not feel so alone um so our parents got there and our parents got told him my sister came my sister got told him and then everything just moved so quickly um day shift came on and uh you know we had to make the decision of if we were going to do an autopsy to figure out like what happened like obviously we know with them being so premature it could be a multitude of things and the odds were stacked against us from day one. Um, but we just felt like we had just, you know, got past a huge milestone or huge roadblock. Um, and then to just be hit with this, you know, it's like, why? Um, obviously I kind of went to, um, which, you know, in the back of your mind, you never want to think of what you want to think, you know, did something happen? Did somebody do something wrong? 
was somebody the cause of it? Because we're all human. We all make mistakes. Obviously, it's not um, intentional, but was there a mistake made? Um, And then the other part of the reason we wanted to have um, an autopsy done was because the boys were identical. Um, We wanted to make sure it wasn't something that could potentially affect Liam. Um, So that ultimately was the reason we decided to do an autopsy, just to make sure it wasn't something that we needed to be on the lookout for with Liam. Our, one of our other primary nurses wasn't a primary at the time, but ended up being a primary, um, Erica. She came on and she got pictures of Wyatt for us, um, got pictures of us holding Wyatt. Because um, at that time, you don't think about doing those things. Um, but I'm glad we have those to look back on. They're hard to look at, but I'm glad we have them. So it just, the whole day was a blur. Um, you know, you're having to make decisions. They're telling us that they're going to move us to a private room. That was hard to leave the twin room because you feel like you're, you know, leaving Wyatt. Um, and then we, our family started talking to us about, um, funeral arrangements, that sort of thing. And that was really hard because it just doesn't seem real. Like you don't think you're going to have to. No parent ever feels like they're going to have to make funeral arrangements for their children. And I know that there's many, many that do, but um, you just never think you're going to be in that situation. Um, so they put us in a room um, that I think are, is used for, like, if parents stay overnight with their babies kind of close to going home. Um, it's like a joined room. Um, so they gave us that room and just said, you know, you can have as many people in there as you need. Um, just let them know at the front that people are going to be coming and going. We'll bring them around, whatever. Um, so Tim and I were just exhausted. Um, and we ended up, there's a bed in there. Um, we ended up falling asleep. So our parents had left um, just to go, you know, get some air. And when I woke up, I honestly thought it was all just a dream like I just I thought I was in the Ronald McDonald room um woke up for the morning we were gonna go in into the NICU and see the boys um and then when I realized where I was um that's when the reality hit that you know I only had one baby alive left so that was hard um And then I ended up running into you, or both Tim and I did, ran into you in the hall. You were doing rounds that morning, I think. You weren't on our team, you were on another, the other team, but, um, and you asked me if you could give me a hug, and that was exactly what we needed. Um, you know, it's hard to know what to say to somebody when they lose someone, um, and honestly, just a hug is the best thing I think you can do for somebody just to show that compassion. You know, I didn't know you at that point other than that you were in the delivery room. Um, but just that compassion, you know, that one person shows to another in that situation is just exactly what somebody needs, in, in my opinion. Well, I think it's that's one of the hardest things is people don't – know what to say and the reality is that there there is nothing to say i i can't say i'm sorry that's not enough i can't say it's gonna be okay because it's not i can't say 
don't worry, you'll start to feel better because that's not what you need right now. Right. And so I think, so I said, do you, would you like a hug? Because that's what I had to offer. And that's what I would have wanted, I think. I mean, I I don't know for sure, but I think that's what I would have wanted. Yeah. Um, and, and I tell people sometimes the hardest thing is to just sit with somebody who is going through something that's really, really difficult and really, really hard. You don't have to say anything. Just sit there. Just be there. That in and of itself is enough. And if you don't know what to say, don't, just don't say anything. Just, yeah. just be there. Don't yep. try to make it better. Don't try to provide comfort. Just be present. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And like I said, that's exactly what it was for us. And the same with Whitney, um, the night, or I guess early that morning, just sitting with us. Um, Erica, when she came on, she just gave us a hug. She didn't say anything, you know, and that's just, like you said, there's nothing that you can say that will make it better. Nothing will bring, you know, our baby back. Um, And it was really hard going into the NICU, um, obviously we knew we had twins, but it's kind of like, you know, why are we coming back? Our, our baby died. And then you're like, oh, well, I have another baby that I have to take care of. I have another baby that I have to focus on. And, um, that was really, really hard, um, for us, you know, dealing with, there's a lot of guilt. Um, when you're thinking about and grieving, when we were thinking about grieving Wyatt, we then felt guilty for not putting a hundred percent focus on Liam because we still had another baby that needed our focus and attention. Um, and then, and then opposite when you're thinking about Liam, then you're guilty. You feel guilty for not grieving Wyatt and thinking about Wyatt. And that I think was our biggest struggle was, you know, celebrating Liam's victories, no matter how big or small they were, because we didn't feel like it was fair to Wyatt because, you know, why it had passed away obviously we didn't have those victories to celebrate but we just felt this I don't know it was just this tug and pull and push and pull this whole time of like do we grieve Wyatt do we celebrate Liam it was just it's it's really weird situation to be in well and how do you how do you do both right because I mean the reality is that as a parent you deserve to do both you right you deserve to be able to grieve Wyatt and you deserve to be able to celebrate Liam. Um, and with all of parenting, it, you can't be in two places at once. And so right. I can imagine how that's kind of a brain trick, right? Like you're flopping your brain from super grateful to super devastated kind of back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. It was very emotionally draining. Um, just the NICU experience in itself um, is draining and taxing and stressful and then you add on loss um and that's a whole different ball game I mean they say that there's the steps of loss and grieving and you go from one to the other and that's not the case you know you can go from one to the other and then you go back or you can go from one to one three steps down the road you know it's just that everybody grieves differently um everybody processes it differently everybody handles it differently um for me, I think talking about what happened has helped me a lot. Whereas I think with Tim talking about it doesn't help and that's totally fine. I mean, every, like I said, everybody 
handles grief and stress differently. Um, there's no right way to go through it. And I think even in other situations where parents have, you know, had multiples and lost one or two and, you know, had triplets or whatever, um, even those situations are different from ours. You know, it's just, there's no rule book on how to navigate that situation. No, there's definitely no rule book. And, and grief isn't linear, right? Like, so we, we, you hear about these five steps of grief and yeah, there are five different mindsets that you are in while you're going through grief, but you can do one, two, and three all in the same day and then spend three years in number four and then wake up one day and go back to number one, right? So you can, it's just not linear. You can bounce between all those different stages. My, um, my grandma had a baby boy that was born in 19, let's say 52, I think. Um, he was a couple years older than my mom and her twin sister. And that baby had some sort of congenital heart disease that they did not offer surgery for at the time. Mm-hmm. And till the day she died, my grandma carried the one picture that she had of Gregory with her and talked about how difficult it was to move forward after they lost their son, but that with time they were able to refind that joy in life. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that is possible. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, like, I think you guys have found joy in your life since Wyatt died, mm-hmm. but it takes time and you, can't telling you that at the time that it's happening isn't helpful um because that's not where you're at right (laughs) like yeah eventually you will be fine but today you don't have to be great yeah do you want to talk about what it was like for you to go into the queue after i've kind of been talking a lot (laughs) (laughs) um she's the talker you're the not talker yes (laughs) when it when it comes to this yeah (laughs) very much Hey, you know, and that's that's probably a fault of mine is like just compartmentalizing stuff too much. But uh, yeah, like I, I remember that night uh, or early morning, uh, things just felt off from the moment we walked walked up to 4D. Um, <clears throat> I just remember, like you know, we we were so used to going through our routine of like wash your hands, get your get your badge, and everything. And so, <clears throat> I knew I knew something was wrong when they said, "Don't worry about that. Just go to go to the room." Um, so <clears throat> that, like, I think that was the moment that I realized that it was uh, like it was worse than what we probably thought. Um, and then just like Ashley, she, she kind of explained the rest of it uh, pretty well, but, um, yeah, just, uh, I I think sitting in that room alone, uh, like I remember how eerily quiet it was. And the only thing you heard was, uh, the, like the heartbeat alarm on, on his monitor, um, which wasn't normally on. And so I think that, like, just that ear silence and then just hearing that, um, 
then she kind of talked about how there was a like just a, a giant team of people in there, and then it was literally thirty seconds, and the room was completely, completely empty. And that, like, that was it was horrible. Um, but like she said, like we, there was a good support support team there with the staff and. Um, I, I don't know. We, it, 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 we were kind of numb to it, and you get uh, you get so caught up in like so many people. You know, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for your loss. And I, like like you said, you know, sometimes that's not good enough. But as uh, the parents, you just have to um, you kind of just get an auto response to those situations where everybody says and you're just like oh thank you you know thank you and you're all you almost feel like uh you almost start get to the point where you don't have emotion around it because you're just so used to saying you know thank you and moving on but uh yeah actually you know she kind of talked about about the rest uh just you know how difficult it was to to balance and i i think still to this day i don't know that we uh like we ever grieved properly or you know took the time to do that and so that's and i don't know that we ever will you know it's a it's a continued um way on your mind of how how that situation went but uh we're we're very thankful uh that we had liam in that situation because i don't, I don't honestly don't know what we would have done yeah. had we not had another baby to take our focus off of what was happening. Yeah. So. Um, you aren't the only parents to say that to me. So I've had other, <clears throat> other parents of twins say, I would not have survived this grief if I didn't yeah. have the twin sibling. Um, because those were those initial windows of joy coming back in were all related to the twin sibling. So I, I think that's not uncommon. <clears throat> Um, because I've had other parents express those same feelings. Yeah. I mean, like Tim said, just having that focus, knowing that, you know, we have to be strong for Liam. Um, we have to fight for Liam. Um, you know, we can't just lay around in bed all day and cry. We have to get up. We have to be there for Liam. And that honestly was what helped me get out of bed every day was knowing that I had another baby that, you know, we had to go and see and we had to advocate for and we had to, um, you know, tell him we loved him. And I think one of the harder things that I, you know, dealt with was, you know, we can't hold our babies. Um, but I have a friend that I used to work with in Sydney and she actually was a NICU nurse. And she said, you know, they, they feel your love. You might not be able to hold them, but those tiny babies, even, you know, bigger babies in the NICU, they can feel your love. Um, so just knowing we had to be there for Liam, um, that helped, I think, a lot get through um, grieving Wyatt. And we did have a um, service for Wyatt. Um, we didn't have not done a funeral because um, we actually ended up moving shortly after we came home with Liam, which is another story. But um, so just like Tim said, I don't think we've really gotten that um, – I don't want to say closure because it's not closure, um, but we just haven't been able to properly grieve him. I don't feel like because 
just of how life has unfolded, which I mean, is no fault to anybody. It's life. And you just take it in strides and you put one foot in front of the other. And that's exactly what we did. Um, I think part of it is you don't want to. Yeah. (laughs) As soon as you do, it's, it's final. Right. It does. It feels like there's some finality to it. Yeah. And that, I don't, it's hard because it's like, you know, do you want that? Which, I mean, ultimately is, I think, what you need. But um, it's still just hard to, you know, now with all this COVID stuff going on, we still still can't have, still can't do one. So um, it's been hard. But uh, Liam has definitely, definitely, you know, helped. He brings joy to us every single day. And um We've become, I, I know I have become more and more grateful for the time that we did have with Wyatt. You know, you ask, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say everybody's religious, but we're very religious, um, you know, and you ask God, why? Why did this have to happen to me? Why did, you know, why did our twins have to be born so early? Why did, why were we given all this joy of, you know, bringing two babies into the world to only be able to bring one physically home with us? Um so that's been a struggle in and of itself too. Um, but Liam has, Liam is our earthly angel and Wyatt is our heavenly angel. Um, yeah, it's been hard, but yeah. we're, we're getting through. Okay. So why don't we transition off of Wyatt and everything you went through there? Just give you guys a little bit of a break and talk yeah. about, um, Let's talk about the rest of Liam's hospital stay. Yep. So you want to talk about the rest of his stay? Sure. I've been talking a lot. Um, so <laughs> it was – timelines uh, blur after a while. But um, shortly after um, shortly after Wyatt passed, Liam actually um, started to show signs and symptoms of um, – through his labs of a bowel perforation as well. They didn't think it was at first, but uh, some of his labs showed vastly different and they were concerned about it. And um, it it was really cool to see the teams like they, they took uh, the lessons learned from Wyatt's experience and said, we're not going to mess around with trying this or trying that. We're just going after it. And so they, instead of doing a a drain in his bowel to try and go that route, they said, we're just going to go in the first time I look for the bowel perforation and, um, you know, skip the, the 48 hour test to see if uh, the, the drain worked. And, um, you know, in hindsight, that was uh, absolutely the right call to make because he had a, a pretty significant bowel perforation. So uh, here we go around two, yeah. you know, of, of the same situation. Um, so he, he went through surgery, uh, great. And, um, I think we, we held Wyatt's service like a week, week after that. And so again, just, you know, that battle of trying to balance, balance the focus. Um, but, uh, he got through surgery fine. He had the ostomy, um, in, in the bag and, um, it got, got through his infection and, uh, you know, was growing. I think, uh, I think it was the day after Wyatt had passed that Ashley was actually able to do skin to skin contact for the first time um, with Liam. 
long time coming, right? Yes, definitely what I needed. So that was the first time that Ashley got to hold Liam, which was a a really cool experience. Kind of, again, takes you back into like, holy crap, how, how, how small are these these babies and he hadn't really gained any weight at that point uh you know three or four weeks into into life uh, i'm all about perspective so i always say like their their femur was about the size of my index finger if, if that helps put things in perspective for people um so he got through uh that surgery uh, was doing good and um we, we don't have to go through every single detail, but uh, just some of the other things that popped up throughout the stay is um, his um, had some eye tests done and they started to see uh, retinopathy, a prematurity ROP. Um, so they kept a pretty close eye on that again. Um, in every situation, the doctors were very good about explaining, you know, this is really common. We see it all the time. And that, that helped us mm-hmm. a lot to know you know, again, do you freak out or do you not freak out? And that, that helped us a lot. And so we knew it was pretty normal. Um, he was, uh, um, kind of trending towards needing surgery. And so we started to prepare for that. And, uh, at that point, I think we got moved to our third room yeah. in the NICU. They, <laughs> they were doing some cleaning. And so, you know, we moved from the twin suite to a private room and then we moved to our third room. Yeah. Um, and that's where he had eye surgery a couple of times to correct that, that ROP, which went really well. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after that, I think is when they did the reanastomosis where they uh, kind of put his belly back together, so to speak. Um, and then we were, uh, we were super excited shortly after that. Easter. Uh, it was, it was Easter. Easter weekend. Yep. Uh, they said, you're going, you're going to grad. And, uh, we were kind of, we thought we were a couple of weeks away from maybe going to grad mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, we, we came in back from lunch one day and I said, well, uh, we're moving you this afternoon. And we, you know, we're both just kind of like, what? <laughs> What's happening? We get uh, to leave? <laughs> Not that we didn't want to leave you guys, but, you know, just going to grad NICU is a, is a huge step. Um, it is so a we huge were, step. That's why we call it the grad NICU. Yeah. Right. So we were super excited. So, uh, we went over to grad and, uh, Liam had started bottle feeding at that point. Uh, he couldn't until his, his belly was put back together. And so we, we started to bottle feed. Um, and he was doing doing pretty well on that. And uh, we were over in God, I think, for a couple of weeks. And he started to started to act up where he was um, having the, the A and B spells again. And we couldn't figure out why. Um, and had one pretty significant episode where... Um, they had to pull the code alarm, um, you know, again, all hands on deck surrounding your baby. And, um, I, I did, I wasn't probably as scared as I should have been in that situation, but I, I could tell in Ashley's face that, that she went into full panic mode again. And so I was, I was trying to stay strong and, uh, you know, take it all in and, uh, not to go too deep into that rabbit hole it, it ended up being fine they were able to get him mm-hmm. um you know stabilized and that was the final straw after some of his other a and b spells i said you're going back to you're going back to 40 yeah. and uh so that was kind of a kick in the teeth and we were like man we're, 
we're here forever. <laughs> we're, never, we're never leaving. We, we joked at some of the docs that he was gonna he was gonna graduate kindergarten um, <laughs> there in the NICU, and uh, so went back to 4D, and uh, they started doing some other tests, and and uh, found out that he he basically had pneumonia from uh, aspiration. So when he was drinking that bottle, a little bit was going into his lungs, and. Um, again, pretty common. And so we tried doing some things to correct that. And ultimately nothing was really solving that. And, um, so they did the Nissen, um, and publication and then, uh, G2, put a G tube in. Um, Ashley will attest that I was probably the most stubborn person on the planet because I, I did not want to put that G tube in, you know, I just, I kept thinking through, home life. And I was like, Hey, God, I do not want to go home with that thing. Um, it's just, we already have a lot on our plate. I don't want to have to worry about one more thing. If we don't have to, um, I got shot down. <laughs> Who shot you down? The doctors or your wife? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me ask, how do you feel about it now? Right? So you've been at home how long now with the G tube? How old is Liam now? He's uh, coming up on a year that yeah. we've been home. Yeah, Father, so okay. Father's Day. Yeah, coming up Father's on a year Day. that you've been home. So what do you think about the G tube now that you've been at home with it for a year? I I don't know how we could live without it. Okay. Well, it's uh, it's actually really, really common where we start to talk about G tubes and parents get this like no way. I am not doing a G tube. So I mean your reaction to that G tube is really very common and from my standpoint i'm like it's a g-tube let's put it in you get to go home and you can still work on eating until whenever it is that he's ready to start eating as opposed to and you and you have a healthy baby right so we put the g-tube in you have a healthy baby who's not having apnea and bradycardia who doesn't have pneumonia who gets to go home with you or right. we cannot put the G-tube in and you can stay here and he can have failure to thrive or he can just eat marginally but not grow, which means his brain's not growing. Right. So we do see this like really big, I don't want the G-tube. Um, yeah. So now I can play this podcast and be like, see, look, Tim really didn't want the G-tube and now he can't live without it. <laughs> yeah, I think every day he's like, well, what if we just do this? What if we do just do this, you know, and... Um, I think finally um, the surgeon said I put the G tube in more as you know to keep compression off the belly, um, so that you know the Nissen and fundoplication can heal. Um, because otherwise, you know, you're, that wrap can essentially not function anymore if you're putting a lot of stress, you know, on it right after surgery, um, and it's not able to um, heal. Um, so I think that was kind of the final straw and, you know, Tim was like, okay, well, I guess I lose this battle. And I, you know, my whole standpoint on it was always like, you know, it could be worse. We could have, you know, we could be going home with a trach and I know there's babies that go home on trachs, you know, all the time. And same thing, it's, you know, because they get to go home and then they don't have failure to thrive, you know, they can grow and they're healthy, but you know, in my mind, I was weighing those two things of like, well, it's a G-tube or a trach. You know, G-tube, we can manage on our own. Trach, you know, not so much. You know, we have to have outside help. We have to have all this extra equipment. Um, 
And for me, even going in like through nursing school, trachs always scared me of like, what if it comes out? You know, like that's their that's their air support. Like, you know, that's how they breathe in a G tube. It's like, okay, well, if the G tube comes out, you know, we put it back in, type of a thing. You know, yeah, you it's, don't eat for an hour or two. Not, yeah, you don't. Not you don't breathe for an hour or two. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that was kind of where I was always at. Was like, well, it could be worse. Um, so yeah, we ended up obviously doing the G tube. Um, for the record, I became a self-proclaimed uh, medical professional <laughs> uh, by the end of our five-month stay. So he uses medical terms all the time, and I'm like, "Where did you learn that?" And he's like, "The NICU." <laughs> That's awesome. That means we did our job. That means we yeah. taught you what was happening with exactly. your with your baby. So you you yes. learned it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we came home um, on Father's Day is when we got to leave, which was uh, Sunday. And I think Dr. Crow was on, and she's like, well, do you guys want to go home Sunday, or do you want to wait until, like, Monday? And we're like, we're leaving Sunday. (laughs) Like, if that's an option, we're leaving that day. (laughs) Not that we don't like you guys, but we want to go home. Um, So, yeah, after all of that, it was kind of – Flying colors. We did, Liam did have silent aspiration. Um, and so we ended up having to stop doing um, all oral feeds um, because we did have it confirmed um, with an x ray that he was aspirating still. Um, it was a tiny, tiny bit amount, but little amounts add up to big amounts. And we obviously didn't want to take the risk of him getting another bout of pneumonia. So, um, that kind of sucked, but again, we knew we had the G tube, um, so he was gonna get his nourishment. He was gonna grow, um, and we could work on, you know, like you said, feeding at home on his terms. Um, but it was in home and you know less stressful and whatnot. So, yeah, we left Father's Day and we made the trek home to Sydney. Um, and I know when we got home, we went inside. We took Liam inside, and we just were like okay, now what do we do? <laughs> you know, you go from having all these people around helping you and all these alarms and monitors and um, IVs to just nothing. Um, and that was really weird. And, um, you know, obviously I trust every nurse and doctor that I worked with at the time, but it was a critical access hospital. Um, they don't care for babies, you know, that preterm. Um so I knew that if anything major went wrong with Liam, it required a flight. Um, so that was always in the back of our mind of, you know, hoping nothing goes wrong so that we don't have to go to the hospital. We don't have to go back to Denver. Um, looking back, Tim and I are always like, how did we keep him alive? Like, just, you know, not that we're bad parents, but it's just to take a baby that was born so early and then to just go home and, you know, not have the help of the nurses and the doctors, you know, I'm a nurse, but I'm not a NICU nurse. You know, I deal with adults. They're vastly different. You know, it's, you can't even compare them really because they're just such different, you know, species essentially. Like they are, they're just, you can't apply what you know to adults really to babies. Correct. So different. (laughs) And I think that was a really hard part for me. Um, throughout our NICU experience was I was applying what I knew as a nurse for adults to our boys. And you can't, you can't compare it 
at all. Yeah, babies are not little adults. They, no, you know, like no. you, there's no, you can't just scale down the medicine for adults to get to the NICU. Right. Right. NICU babies get their own medicine. It's just a very yeah. different place in medicine. Yeah. yeah, and that was really hard for me. Um, and so I think it was probably, I don't know, halfway through our NICU stay that I finally was like, okay, I'm just going to apply my knowledge for medical terms and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to try and figure out what's wrong with him because I'm going to be way off base and, you know, just going to make myself crazy, make my husband crazy, <laughs> make the nurses and the doctors crazy. So, um, so yeah, that was hard. So, and I know there's a lot of people that go through the NICU that do have a medical background and, you know, letting go of that part of your life is hard. Um, and to let somebody else kind of take over is, you know, hard too. But I definitely would recommend trying to do it as best as you can because I think it helped keep me sane a little bit better when I wasn't so focused on the nurse aspect of it, of just being a mom. Yeah. Well, and that we see that when um, physicians have babies in the NICU, um, mm. there's lots of conversations about you are the dad. You are the mom. You yeah. need to be the parents, not the doctor, because this is your child. And the same was true for when my son was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I, I very much was, I am the parent. The yeah. doctors would say, well, have you listened to him? And I'm like, nope, I do not lay a stethoscope on my own children. If you yeah. tell me he has crackles, he has crackles. But I'm not going to second guess. I am just the parent. Right. Um, and, I, and I think... You, that's what you have to do is just be the yeah. parent. Yeah, yeah, it is. You do, and it's very, very hard. But um, I definitely think it's necessary to separate those roles when it's you know you're even when it's a family member. It could be you know grandma or grandpa or aunt and uncle. I still think it's important to separate those roles out and just be the family member or the parent or whatever in that situation. Yeah. Was there ever a time in the NICU that you? finally felt comfortable or do you always feel did you always feel like you were waiting for the other shoe to drop um I will answer separately I know for me personally I, I don't think I ever felt comfortable um and I think a lot of it stemmed from Wyatt just because with him you know we were headed in the right direction we had negative blood cultures everything was going great we got over the big scary infection and then the worst thing of our life happened. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I ever felt comfortable. Um, even when we were told we were going to be going home on Father's Day, I still had reservations of like, you know, what could go wrong? What could happen next? Um, so I personally never really felt like we were over the hump until we were like in the car going home. And then, and then did you feel totally comfortable when you got home? Or... No. No, <laughs> no. So how, um, how long did it take you at home to kind of settle into this new life of, okay, we have this premium, we brought him home and I'm no longer waiting for the rug to fall out from underneath me every second of every day? Um, I think for me, it was probably at least a few months. Um, you know, you get into the routine in the NICU and then when you come home, it's a totally different routine. Um, you know, in the NICU, 
they're always in, you know, doing something with him. Towards the end of it, they tried to leave him alone and they, you know, clustered care and only went in if they needed to or whatever. Otherwise, they'd let him sleep. Um, and we were there pretty much every, we were there every day. Um, sometimes both of us, Tim was going back to Sydney um, a couple times a week for work. Um, but it's, you, it's, come, it's figuring out a new routine and every parent I think goes through that. Even when you have a healthy term baby, you know, you go home and you have to figure out a routine. And when you have a baby that, you know, is on oxygen and has a G tube, it's, you know, other things you have to add into your routine. Um, and the hardest part for, I think both of us was getting used to just looking at, um, looking at our baby and seeing if he's okay. You know, we relied on those monitors for so long. Um, and like I said, as a nurse, I know that that's what you're supposed to do, but when it's your child, it's totally different. And when you have that crutch of those alarms and even the nursing staff there, um, cause they're ultimately the ones that are, you know, taking care of your baby at the time. Um, you have that crutch and then you no longer have that. And it's just like, it's just a struggle to figure out this new routine when you get home. Um, so for me, it was, I think a few months before I was starting to actually feel comfortable, of, you know, the G tube itself, the oxygen, um, just getting to know Liam, you know, as, cause we hadn't, we didn't really get the opportunity to in the NICU. You know, it's hard to get to know your baby in the NICU when, you know, they're sick. Um, so just, that was tough. So yeah, for me, probably a few months. Yeah, I think the the nursing YouTube surgery was kind of the hump where I felt like it, it was after that 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 they gave us a little more freedom with cares, where it was basically like you do your thing. If he's crying, you pick him up. Mm -hmm. um, so we started to feel more like parents at that point, um, and I, I guess a greater level of responsibility, but still not comfortable. A hundred percent. And I think, I think it took a couple months after being home of uh, figuring out routines and mm -hmm. we still had the, the pulse oximeter uh, at home. And so getting used to that alarm and, um, you know, what, what's concerning that sets it off or, uh, 90% of the time it's accidental. Uh, he wiggled too much and it set off the alarm yeah. type of deal. So, yeah. So I think it's kind of cool that you went home on Father's Day and yeah. it's June and Father's Day is coming up and you're going to have been home for a year. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about moms in the NICU and the, you know, there's the birth and the trauma of the birth and um, mom guilt about delivering early and postpartum hormones and pumping and breastfeeding and milk supply and all that kind of stuff. So we spend a lot of time talking about moms. Um, but since you were willing to come on the podcast and be a little <laughs> guinea pig for me, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about dads in the NICU because in all honesty, I'm not a dad. And I, I mean, I just don't have the perspective of a dad. I, I am a mom. I can very easily relate to the perspective of the mom. So I was hoping you could give us some insight into fatherhood in the NICU and how you think it's the same or different than what moms are going through. Yeah. So I think that, uh, you, uh, you know, like the, the stereotypical dad situation, you want to continue to be that supportive, like shoulder to cry on type of deal. Um, 
you know, we were we were pretty fortunate in our situation that I was able to spend the majority of the stay in Denver um, with Ashley. There was, you know, a few weeks I would have to travel back and forth to home uh, to take care of things around the house or get some some things at work. Um, and our, our parents, one or the other, would come down and, and stay with Ashley. And, I, you know, that was really important to me to make sure that she had somebody there with her. So you're trying to be that... Uh, you know, that um, overarching take care of everything type of mentality. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like, it's important to be vulnerable. And that that was really hard for me uh, to, I guess, let those walls break down and, you know, uh, be scared and cry and take it all in. Um, you know, I, I think advice I would give is try to be, try to be there for care times. I know a lot of times the dads kind of, um, or, you know, they gather all the information from the mom, let her get all the information. And then, uh, you know, she can give you the, the low level, uh, update of what's, what's going on. But it was really important for me to, to be there during the care times, um, and to be there for like doctor's rounds and ask the questions because I, I, you know, my mind, and I, I think, it, you know, there's guy's mind and, uh, and a woman's mind and <laughs> the, in our mind, it goes a, a whole lot different than, uh, than what a mom thinks. And so something that might seem so simple of, you know, just do it this way, uh, you know, it's pretty easy. Uh, so to be there and hear the doctor's explanation for how that, no, that won't work. That's, <laughs> that's not the way it can go. You know, that was, that was kind of hard to, to grasp, but yeah, it was like, like I said, it's important to, to be vulnerable. A lot of the focus is on the mom and, and their emotions. And as the dad, you want to be that, that supportive figure. But I think, um, you probably don't realize you need the support just as much. I think, uh, so Ashley has a cousin. They had two preemie babies, uh, not, not quite as small as ours, but after Wyatt passed, he, he kind of pulled me aside and just said, like, are you okay? Um, he said, you know, I, I know a lot of the focus goes on the moms, uh, you know, throughout the whole NICU stay, but so that, that was, uh, that was important to me, um, in kind of an aha moment of like, yeah, you know, that is, that is kind of how it is, but, but, uh, you know, you need the, you need the man hug too. So, no, that's awesome. Looking back um, on your NICU stay, is there anything you, now that you've been through everything that you've been through, is there anything you would go back and tell yourselves at the beginning of the stay or anything you uh, wish you knew before this all started? Um, that's like a really loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Honestly, we talked about this, you know, when you're going through the questions, um, that's why I send the questions early so yeah. you can act because I don't want to blindside somebody with that right. question because it is such a loaded question. Right. Um, honestly, and we both like said the same thing almost at the same time. I, I don't know if there's anything um, that we wish we had known before. Like like I said before, you know, ignorance is bliss. Um, obviously, knowing what we know now, if hopefully we don't ever go through it again. But if we were to, like we're a little more. I guess prepared of like what to expect. Um, so I don't really wish, 
you know, as first time parents going through the NICU the first time is hard and you don't want to go through all those scary things. So, um, for us personally, you know, there's not really a whole lot we wish we would had known going into it. Um, just because I think that amplifies the fear and the stress, um, at least for us, obviously everybody's different. Um, the one thing I would tell myself is, you know, take time every day to just breathe. You're so focused on your baby and um, your, you know, what's going to happen next and what the doctors are saying and making sure you're there for care times. You know, at the beginning, we were there for every single care time. Um, obviously not in the middle of the night because we needed sleep too, but um, we were there first thing in the morning. We were there for the rest of the day to take, you know, to do care times. Um, but it's important to take time for yourself. Um, and our nurses told us that they lectured us from day one and said, get out, go to lunch, don't come back, go to dinner, don't come back. You know, obviously you can call if you need to, if something's going on, we'll call you. Um, but yeah, just take time, you know, to breathe and to try to take it all in um, and to take time for yourself. You know, we both ended up getting sick um, once during the NICU stay and, you know, we weren't allowed to go in the NICU because, um, you know, we didn't want to risk getting Liam or other babies sick, you know, or the nurses that are taking care of these babies sick or the physicians. So it's important to take care of yourself no matter how hard it is. You know, self-care is important because if you're not healthy you can't be there for your baby um the other thing I would tell myself is to take time for Tim and I you know go to lunch and try not to think about what's going on go do something that just takes your mind off of it for even if it's just an hour you know we at towards the end we went to the zoo a lot once it got to be nicer weather and we would just walk around and that takes your mind off of it for a little bit um and you might say well don't you feel guilty well no, because you have to take care of yourself first. Like I said, you have to be healthy to take care of your baby. Yeah. Well, and, and I would say you really shouldn't feel guilty. Right. Um, you know, for some parents, it's really, really hard to leave the unit. And so mm -hmm. starting in baby steps, we'll just go down the elevator to the coffee cart and get a cup right. of coffee, drink your cup of coffee and come back upstairs. That's 15 right. minutes of just space and breath where you're not staring at the monitors yeah. and just waiting. Um, so I think it's really, really important for people to spend time in the NICU with their baby and spend time doing something for themselves. And it doesn't have to take a ton of time, but right. it should be something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that the, like, and we were told from the very beginning, be, be ready for the NICU roller coaster. You know, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And you, they're like, yeah, you know, I get it. Um, you don't. You, yeah, you, <laughs> you don't get you it. You don't. You don't want to accept that. And I like, I mean, I'm sure a, a new NICU parent would be in the same same shoes as us. Where they're like, oh, no, it's it can't be that bad. Well, little did we know, you know, for me, it started on the car ride down where, you know, one second I was like, oh, I got, you know, they're going to hold them for 48 hours. And then her sister called, hey, uh, they're going to be here within the hour. Um, so then it was like, holy crap, uh, foot, you know, foot to the floorboard. Um, and then another call like, oh, okay, like, you know, it's going to be okay. And, you know, they're, they're taking her down to the delivery room. Just get here as, as safely and quickly as you can. And then next call is, 
oh, can't wait. We're, you know, they're taking them right now. And then, you know, dealing with the emotion of not, not being there. And that was just the beginning of a, a long, long ride. Yeah, I, I think it is much more turbulent than people think. And for, for, for some babies, it's not that turbulent, right? Like they can have a really relatively smooth hospital stay, but yeah. it can be really quite turbulent. So yeah. what have I not asked you about? I was gonna, that's what I was going to move into was the advice um, for people, which we kind of goes into this. Um, so I think advice um, that we would give, you know, to other people. Um, for me, I, I know Tim's not much of a journaler, but um, for me, it helped a lot to write everything down. Um, there's a lot of companies, um, you know, that have journals specific to a NICU journey. Um, to where you can write down like, you know, everything that happened. And that helped a lot um, for me. I didn't start it right away because I didn't have the journals right away. Obviously, I didn't anticipate having a NICU baby or NICU babies, but um, that was important for me. So it's just a, it was a way for me to process my emotions, process the information from the doctors. You know, you're given all of this information in a short amount of time because, you know, they don't spend a ton of time in your room because they have other patients to see and um, so as far as like having questions for them, you know, you don't typically have a lot of questions on the spot. So it gave us time to process what we were being told. And then, you know, to, if we had questions, we came up with those questions after. Um, so that was a big one. Um, and then like Tim was saying, you know, try to be there for rounds if you can, obviously, you know, if you have a job that plays into it, sleep plays into it, but, um, the docs there did really good about um, if we weren't there for rounds, coming back later when we were there just to give us a little update. The nurses also were fantastic with telling us, you know, what was going on, the next steps or whatnot. Um, and then a big thing for us was utilizing social media. I know a lot of people aren't okay with that, but um, it was a way for us to give an update to everybody just with one shot you know we um Tim like he said we did a lot of the fielding of phone calls and text messages from everybody even after I was out of the hospital um but it just it made it a lot easier when we could just put a quick little update together put it out on Facebook and then everybody could see it you know when they wanted to and we didn't have to field a ton of phone calls and text messages because you know we did get some and obviously we want to respond to everybody but it's kind of not high on the priority list you know and that's just a fact of life it's not being rude or anything yeah one of uh, the one of the other moms who I interviewed um said come up with a communication plan and whether yeah. that communication plan is everything goes through this person or we're going to send out an email once a week or we're going to post to facebook or instagram or whatever social media thing you want but have a communication plan so people aren't barraging you all the time and when they do you can say i don't have to worry about that because they're going to get their update on monday right like i said i would update every monday or, or whatever day it is Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we, uh, we kind of talked about that with, uh, I've got a large family. And so instead of all of them coming to me with the, the updates, 
we kind of figured out a process naturally where, you know, we would update our parents with the daily text message. And, you know, some of it's stuff that you don't want to share on social media or, you know, the more important updates. And so they became that, that, uh, yeah, they were, yeah, they were your yeah. conduit for communication. Yeah. the con They were our conduit. And so I, I, I would give it to my parents and then they would distribute that out to, um, all of my brothers and sisters. And that, that helped us a ton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as far as like your support system goes, um, in our situation, you know, we were displaced. We were in another state, um, not at home. And yes, Ronald McDonald has a kitchen, but the last place you really want to be is in the kitchen cooking food. So, um, home cooked meals was huge for us. It just, the little things that could make it feel like home for us, even if, you know, the people that are in the NICU, they do live in that, you know, city um, where their baby is at and they've got family just, you know, bringing them a home cooked meal of, and not, and not giving them the option because Tim and I are very, we don't really like to ask for help. <laughs> um, so not really giving them an option, just saying like, hey, I'm bringing you a home cooked meal tonight. Um, even if you're not home, like I'll drop it off at your house or whatever. Um, just, you know, just make it as normal as possible for them because even if they do live in that town life is still not normal you know you're supposed to bring your baby home so then when your baby is in the NICU it's it's just not how normal pregnancies go or I shouldn't say normal there is no normal but average pregnancies you know and deliveries go um I think our support system realized that we needed the help more than we did yeah uh, like we they saw that, you know, that you just need somebody there with you for a couple of days or, you know, that kind of thing. And we were, um, you know, I guess blind to that. And so that, that was really helpful. Like, I don't, we are forever indebted to our parents yeah. for, um, our fam our whole family, you know, our, yeah. our whole families for, uh, the support that we got through that entire journey. I, like, I, you, you can say it all you want. You'll never be able to repay them, but uh, looking back at it now, it's just like holy crap. Um, yeah, it was well, invaluable. Yeah, yeah, and they're going through it too. You know, obviously not as a parent, but as a grandparent or aunts and uncles, close friends. You know, they're still going through it too. Obviously, in a different manner. Um, but you know, on the same side of that, let let them help you. That was really hard. For me, especially, I don't like asking for help. I'll just do everything myself until I wear myself down. Um, so let people help you as hard as it as hard as it is. Just you know, accept that help and you know, take it because you do need it. You might not think you do, but you definitely need the help. Um, and then my last thing, um, and this is as a mom and as a nurse, is just advocate for your babies. Um, even as Tim with no medical background, there's times where he was like, I just don't feel good about this. Or, you know, my gut's saying this, you know, your babies can't, they can't talk. They can't communicate other than when they're sick and, you know, they have the AB spells or their labs are off or whatever. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, don't be afraid to question, you know, the treatment options or whatever, because yes, they're the physician and they know, but you also know your baby too, you know? And so don't be afraid to, 
you know, just ask those questions and just say, you know, why are we doing this? You know, if we have these two options, why are we doing this option over this option? And our physicians, um, we're really good about explaining both options to us and like why they were going with option A versus option B. Um, obviously I can't speak for all hospitals, but you know, just that's important. It's just advocate for your baby. Your gut tells you a lot and most of the time your gut instinct is not wrong. So don't ignore it. Yeah, definitely don't ignore it. And don't let somebody make you feel unimportant or not valuable when you do ask questions. I personally love when parents ask questions because Mm -hmm. that means that they're hearing what I'm saying about their baby, that they understand what's happening and and they want to understand a little bit more. To me, that's like the best sign that parents are involved and invested and loving their child is by asking questions. It's not a a front or... um, well, we don't trust your judgment. I like I truly view it as yeah. you're just wanting to know about your baby. So please ask questions. Please ask your nurses, ask your doctors, ask the nurse practitioners. Um, get your questions answered because as parents, it's you're right. I mean, you really should know everything that's happening with your babies so that there aren't as as much as we can control any big surprises, there aren't as many big surprises. Right. Our, our nurses are very good about empowering us to yeah. uh, like, you know, be involved with the cares, but to ask those questions and we would ask them as, you know, try to use them as a buffer, uh, yeah, as a buffer <laughs> between the doctors. And they were like, no, you ask that yourself. Yeah. Um, and so that was, um, you know, it was kind of, kind of cool for them to be like, ask them, like, it's not going to hurt anything. Yeah, yeah. Us doctors are super scary, right? They're very <laughs> scary. I remember there was one time um, I wanted, we had, Liam was getting probiotics and we had stopped them and then we kind of noticed changes in his stool. And so I asked the nurse and I don't remember if it was a primary nurse or not, but I just said like, why, you know, can we put him back on probiotics? And she's like, well, ask the doctor. And I think it was Dr. Crow. Um, and I felt like I was at work as the nurse, but I said, Dr. Crow, can we restart probiotics? And she's like, well, why would we restart probiotics? Like total, like, took me back to when I was at work, I asked a doc if I could get an order for something. And they're like, well, why, you know, and you have to have that, you know, backup for it. And so then I just explained to her like why I was wanting to restart him. And she's like, okay, yeah, I just wanted to know your reasoning. It's valid. So we'll restart the probiotics. And we did notice like a positive change in his, you know, stooling. And so, um, but that it's, that's just a little example of, you know, like ask the questions, don't be afraid. Like doctors, I think have this, like image of being like scary and mean and um, not approachable. And that's the total opposite. I mean, you do have some doctors and a small percentage that might be that way, but for the most part, like they're very open. And, you know, even if your question and wanting to do something is not the best treatment, at least like you said, they know that you're invested in your baby's care, your kid's care, your family's care. And um, they're, open to that and maybe you bring up something that like they didn't think of like again we're all humans and they don't they you know they're not they they learn it's practicing medicine and that's why they call it practicing medicine for a reason because you know you learn something new every day when parents have unanswered questions 
it ends up driving a wedge between the team and the parents because then you it, it kind of erodes the trust right yeah and so I, I would much rather you ask the questions and I can tell you well I'm worried about it for this reason I'm not worried about it for this reason well right. I like your point but I want to try this first because but, right but I can't I can't continue to build that relationship if you don't ask the questions that you have. Right. And I don't yeah. even know what's eating away at you. Well, why did she stop that? I mean, I just don't understand. We'll ask yep. and then we can have a conversation. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it'll, it will eat you alive because we did that, I think, in the beginning where we didn't really ask questions just because, you know, we're so focused on the boys. We're slightly intimidated. You know, it's a whole new world for us. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, don't be afraid to ask and you know, that's why it's important, I think, to journal, to just write everything down so that you have the opportunity to process everything and then come up with those questions if you have them. Um, you know, it's just, it's important. Your babies can't talk. You're their, you're their advocate for them. Why don't we finish up by telling me how Liam is doing now? We've heard him babbling a little bit in the background during <laughs> yes. the interview, but why don't you kind of summarize where we're at now and how he's doing and how you guys feel about him now? Yeah. So, um, we've had, we recently moved, um, end of last year. So, uh, we had a lot of follow-up appointments, just getting reestablished, um, making sure he's on track, but right now, um, he is on one thirty second of a liter of oxygen. Um, and that's just at night. And when he naps, we're taking breaks from oxygen during the day. He spends most of the day off oxygen and he loves it. You can tell he knows as soon as that cannula comes off, he's a wild man. Um, still getting um, um, all of his nutrition through his G-tube. Um, we kind of hit a little roadblock. He, he had reflux really bad as a NICU baby um, and still has it. The Nissen is doesn't appear to be working anymore. Um, so we had to put him on um, omeprazole and that kind of caused an oral aversion initially until we got the compounded version of it. So now we kind of went back to square one with him and eating. He just, and I think we're also battling, like he's very independent. He wants to do everything himself. So he doesn't like when we feed him, but the new textures of foods he doesn't like. And so he gags a lot and then he doesn't want to do it. So we're fighting that battle, but um, he's doing really good. Um, his last eye appointment, they don't see any ROP, so they'll just monitor him for normal um, vision problems that any other, you know, baby would have. Or, um, and then we are doing, um, through the school district, we got early intervention services um, because with him being born so early, he does have some delay just with meeting milestones. That's normal. Um, he's doing awesome. He's almost to the point of walking. He'll take like five, maybe six steps before he drops down and falls to his knees or on his butt. Um, but he's getting there and he's babbling a lot, like you heard. So I think we're really close to him saying some first words and then walking on his own. So I hope you're ready. Oh my gosh, he is a terror already just crawling around. So I can only imagine. Well, thank you for coming on and yes. sharing your story. And I know it's hard to talk about, but I, I really do appreciate it. And I think other families will too. Yeah, when I saw that that's what you were doing, I told Tim, I said, we should do this. And at first I think he was like, oh, I don't know if I want to relive that. But I, like you said, I think it's important to know 
you know, that you're not alone, that there's other people that go through it. The NICU is kind of like a secret world, like not people don't really know about it until you're thrust into it and you either are the one going through it or have family going through it or whatever. Um, so I think it's important to kind of bring light to it, you know, and it's not just preemies like our boys, it's full term babies that even have to go to the NICU. So I think it's important to kind of shed some light on the journey yeah. through it. Well, and I mean, you start your parenting journey off in the NICU and then you continue after you go home and you you have all the ex-preemie stuff or the ex-term baby who had problem stuff, plus all the parenting stuff on top yep. of it. Um, yep. It's just, I think it's good to talk about. So that's, yep. what, that's what we're here for. You keep saying it, Walt. No, podcast.